Hi everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Greg Baer, the co-author of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, I'm talking with Pamela Cantor, a physician, author, and founder of Turnaround for Children, a nonprofit that helps teachers and schools apply findings from neuroscience and the study of child development. Pam, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. Thank you so much, Greg. I'm really glad to be here. Oh, we're so glad to have you here. Now, before we get into what Turnaround for Children does, let's go back 20 years to the year 2001, and in fact, the aftermath of 9-11. You were a practicing child psychiatrist specializing in trauma, and you'd been tapped to lead a study on mental health and emotional well-being for school children in New York City. And it was then that you discovered something that changed the course of your life and your work. Can you tell us about that? And what is it that you saw? Child psychiatrists learn an awful lot about human development. And one of the key principles we learn about is the power of context. And by context, I mean environments, experiences, and relationships. You think about 9-11, think about the pandemic, or now even the school shootings. These are the kinds of events that dramatically alter the context of our lives, in particular, our children's lives. And after 9-11, like every parent, teacher, or therapist in New York, I wondered, what were the effects of an event like this going to be on children in New York City? We partnered with the New York City Board of Education and the Mailman School of Public Health. And of course, we all assumed that given the destruction at Ground Zero, and the speed with which it happened, that we were gonna find the greatest intensity of symptoms in children living in ground zero. And that is not what happened. The data told a completely different story. It said that the greatest intensity of symptoms were in the children in schools, in communities of deepest poverty. So I went to visit those schools and it didn't take long to understand what was going on. I walked into an elementary school in the South Bronx into a first grade class where a teacher had asked the kids to draw a drawing of what 9-11 meant. A little boy named Thomas, who was about six years old, showed me his picture. And in it, there were two small boxes in the background with smoke coming out. And in the foreground were two stick figure drawings of boys with guns pointed at each other. Thomas's drawing carried a message. It said, I am scared of the violence I see every day when I come to school. I'm scared to come to school. And 9-11 is very far away. Like most kids, it was the immediate local context of their lives that were producing the fear, the stress, and activating the biologic mechanisms that happen under stress. This was the turning point for me personally because what I saw was an education system trying to figure out what was going on with the kids, but the system and the teachers in the schools were not thinking about what we actually knew at that time, about stress, about learning, about human development that I had learned in med school, that children will have different experiences of stress and arrive at school, some ready for learning, some not, and that adversity could be the reason for this 
and I saw schools that were trying to do everything they could to improve academics, not realizing that stress affects exactly those parts of the brain that are responsible for learning. This is one of the most persistent, under-recognized reasons for the achievement gap. So Pam, we're gonna turn, of course, to Turnaround for Children. I can't help but pause and think about that story that you relayed about Thomas, because I'm sure that I and everyone listening can put a name and a face to Thomases who we've witnessed in our own lives. All of that immediate noticing that you experienced in the aftermath of 9-11, it was shortly after that, and just in 2002, that you launched a pilot program at a public school in Washington Heights, right there in Manhattan. So can you tell us a little bit about that program, what it was and what it accomplished? This was the first school that we worked with. So public health models are something I was taught about. I came from a medical background, and that was a big influence on the approach that Turnaround took. We built a public health model, three tiers, where the first tier is the tier of universal supports. This is where prevention can happen. So you prioritize relationships, safety and belonging, positive discipline. You don't exclude kids for behavioral reasons. You train teachers in how to manage difficult behaviors. And then in tier two, you focus on classroom-based supports. So often that meant putting kids at tables with peers that could also be part of the support structure. And a teacher could move around the class and deliver targeted support to different kids. And in tier three, for those who needed more significant help, we established a multidisciplinary team that was teachers, mental health, guidance, the school nurse, to assess kids on multiple dimensions, but certainly emotionally and academically. We thought that if we could correctly identify and get help for the kids that were driving so much of the negative culture in the school, we could change the culture of the building so it became a safe, calm place for learning and kids who needed mental health support, many more of them got that. And one of the byproducts of what we did was that teachers were learning more about their students' lives in the building and out of the building and some of the really difficult situations that kids were navigating. This work, Turnaround for Children, I hadn't appreciated it. it began with that one school in Washington Heights, and now it's nationally and internationally recognized for this approach that you've just described so brilliantly. Can you tell us a little bit more about Turnaround for Children today? Absolutely. We spend a good bit of time in the work that we do with schools and districts and teachers in teaching about the impact of stress in children's lives. So let's just talk for a moment about the biology of stress. Because when we experience stress, cortisol floods our body and our brain, producing that feeling of fight, flight, or freeze. And we've all had it because it's normal. And if the stress is mild or tolerable, it's adaptive. This is the brain's limbic system at work. But when children have high levels of stress and that stress is not buffered by the presence of a trusted adult, something else can happen. Children can get locked in that fight, flight, freeze feeling where it just doesn't let up. So cortisol can do a lot of damage to the structures of the limbic system. But fortunately, that's not the end of the story. There's a big upside when we turn to the hormone oxytocin. 
Puxytocin produces feelings of trust, love, attachment, and safety. And that's not all. Oxytocin hits the same structures in the brain as cortisol. But oxytocin is the more powerful because it can literally protect children from the damaging effects of cortisol. Oxytocin can produce resilience to future stress. So when we say relationships and oxytocin are the most powerful examples we have of positive context, and when we say relationships are central to all development and learning, this is what we mean. Bringing this knowledge into the mainstream of learning and education, this is what Turnaround is dedicated to today. Pam, you'll laugh at me a little bit because I now understand and appreciate that everything that you're talking about is embedded in what we call the science of learning and science of development. It was something I didn't appreciate a few decades ago as you were noticing this. You and your work have been at the core of the science of learning movement. So can you tell us how this movement came about? You've published books about this subject matter. What have you learned about the implications of the science of learning and development for practice? Well, in 2017, we became one of a group of leaders of the Science of Learning and Development Alliance, a group that came into being with lead funding and visionary leadership from Jim Shelton, Brooke Stafford Brizard at the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation. Our group began producing a major synthesis of the science and the implications for practice in two papers that were published in the Journal of Applied Developmental Science. And the challenge we took on was to answer the question, what science should we pay attention to if our goal is the transformation of our education and learning systems toward equity, toward thriving? The Journal of Applied Developmental Science is an academic journal. It is not a popular magazine. So it was completely unprepared for the demand for these papers. And the big aha was realizing that our 20th century education was never designed for equity. It was never designed to develop the learner, and it was never designed to unleash student potential. So one of the biggest challenges that we have today, are we willing to use the knowledge we have about learning and transform our education systems into settings that can see children as whole people, value their assets, and support them to succeed. So Linda Darling-Hammond and I, together with people in our, both our organizations, developed a playbook called The Guiding Principles for Whole Child Design. It's so outstanding, that playbook. Thank you. I'm glad you know it. We use it all the time. You know then that it is practical. It is filled with examples where this work is going on across the country because we wanted people to say, well, I'm already doing three out of the five big things they're telling me to do. So maybe this tells me what I need to do next. And there are five components to whole child design. The first, not surprisingly, is relationships. The second, environments filled with safety and belonging. We know that children cannot learn when they don't feel physically, emotionally, and identity safe. And third, rich instructional experiences. Well, these are experiences that engage and motivate us where we almost don't know that we're learning. And fourth, 21st century skills and mindsets. These are the learning how to learn skills. 
These are the skills that prepare you for the kinds of jobs that are being valued today. And our fifth principle is integrated supports. And one of our biggest challenges is in putting in those public health systems that help us know who needs what, get them the right supports, whether those supports are physical, emotional, or academic, or all three. This is Greg Baer. I'm talking with Dr. Pamela Cantor, Turnaround for Children's founder and senior science advisor. Pam, you often say that science tells an optimistic story about what young people can do when their environments and their relationships are designed with intention, a very Fred Rogers-like thing. So what is it that you mean by that? And what is that optimistic story? And what do these intentionally designed environments and relationships actually look like in a classroom, in a community setting, in all of the places where young people might learn? The thing that makes me optimistic really comes from two places. One is medicine. I practice as a doctor. I worked with kids who had unbelievable challenges and traumatic experiences. And I didn't only watch them get better. I watched them succeed. And it wasn't an accident. I learned firsthand about the malleability of humans, of children, to experiences that start out healing, but then become about growth. Growth of competencies, growth of belief, growth in just knowledge of what one can do. So you become somebody who can't be dissuaded from the belief about what is possible for young people if they get the right relationships and experiences when the conditions in their lives are optimized. Then the other thing that makes me optimistic is the knowledge that we have today. Then no matter what your starting point is, you can design for the outcome you want. And part of how we know this, we can look at stories of kids' lives, of the lives of athletes, of people who achieve extraordinary things. When you read these stories, there is always a person that was pivotal in a young person discovering what their potential was. So Pam, you are a trained medical scientist who also has immersed herself in the social and behavioral sciences, in the fields of policy and law, as you've researched this work around the science of learning and development, which is the title of one of your books, in fact. What has surprised you along the way? There is so much discussion today about equity and what equity is. I wanted to write something to help people see and experience what I experienced in the privilege of going to med school. It starts with learning about a cell, and then an embryo, and then a child, and the whole story of how this cell, this embryo, this child unfold rests on the foundation of what I've been talking about, that genes are chemical followers, they're not the drivers. There are 20,000 genes in the human genome, but in our lifetime, only 10% will get expressed. What determines what's in the 10%? That's where context fits in. Context is the driver of what gets expressed. So this field is called epigenetics. Epi means above. And this is where the biggest opportunities are. So our job as educators is to intentionally design context for health, for learning, for growth. That's what equity would mean to me. 
So let's talk more about those things that we can do, because we began this conversation talking about the aftermath of 9-11. Certainly fast forward a number of years and we have the shock of the pandemic. But mm -hmm. the reality is, is that most kids and families and educators in this country are experiencing the everyday insidious and wicked challenges like Thomas experienced. Mm -hmm. So there's in some ways always a need to redesign our learning systems in ways that respond to that context for each and every child. So what are some of the specific changes you'd like to see implemented? How might schools and their systems be better designed to support our young people who are experiencing trauma and poverty? So I think we all know that even before COVID, we didn't have the learning systems that we need. But the opportunity we have today is we could make a very big down payment on that new system. We know that we have to design environments that factor in health, social, emotional, and cognitive development, identity, and agency. So the principles of whole child design, relationships, belonging, rich instructional experiences, intentional skill development, all of these things we could look at and say, well, we've, we've kind of known that for a long time. But I think what's remarkable to me is that we do not use that knowledge completely and with intentionality. And yet when Linda and I did the playbook, it was very clear that the schools that were achieving outsized gains for kids and not just academic gains were schools that were doing all five things. So today we know that we have to have schools designed for relationships and teamwork, adults trained to know how learning happens and how the brain grows, and resources. We need to use technology, not just ask our teachers to do more, but technology would enable teachers to teach rigorous academic material and at the same time develop the skills of motivated, self-directed learners. That's a great big challenge for yes. schools and school systems. And in fact, it's partly why you're a proponent of learning ecosystems, something Remake Learning knows a lot about. In fact, you've written that no single system, neither public schools nor youth development organizations, can fully address the whole child or involve the whole community. So that's something that Fred Rogers understood too. Ryan and I often say that's why he created Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It wasn't Mr. Rogers' Classroom. So are there ways that ecosystems, learning ecosystems, can leverage the science of learning? When Linda and I and our teams worked on the Whole Child Design Playbook, we actually did a version of the playbook for community learning settings. We know that kids discover themselves in gyms and on ball fields and in plays and in concerts and often at home. So the key to revealing the potential in our young people is to have all of the settings and systems where children are growing and learning designed this way. Right now, our measurement systems are not set up based on a knowledge of development and learning. So we have to measure the right things the child and the context. If we measured the child and we measured the context and more importantly measured the connection between the two, then we are gonna know something about a really, really important principle called the specificity principle. That principle says we need to know what is working for whom, in what context, and what is not 
and we need to know why. It is absolutely a kind of measurement that is used in other systems and by other professionals. And it's remarkable to me that it is not used in education. Think about athletes. You know, when you watch the Olympics and you hear those stories about how athletes train, athletes, they know they perform differently in different contexts and they wanna know how and they wanna know why so they can improve their performance. I think this is the opportunity we have right now because of this mind-blowing insight to unlock the potential in each and every child. We have work to do. And Pam, I'm so glad that you're among the leaders leading us forward. How can people find out about the brilliant work that you're doing? All of the things that I've referred to, plus a lot more, are on Turnaround for Children's website. These are the videos from Edutopia, the papers, the books, and a lot of the presentations that I've been doing, which are also on video. So I hope people will take a look at some of these things and get in touch. And Pam, before we go, just one last question, please. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? I think there's one place that we all have to start. Whether you're an educator, a parent, or both, you have a privilege and a responsibility because you have children in your lives. And maybe you didn't know that you were also a brain builder, that you were also somebody that could change the entire trajectory of a child's life by the nature of the relationship that you form with them in that moment. But if every adult knew that, believed it, and acted on it, the impact on children across the world would be profound. Thanks again to Dr. Pamela Cantor, Turnaround for Children's founder and senior science advisor. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning. Learn more at remakelearning.org.